Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. My guests today are Christina Komlosiova and Stephanie Johnson, the founders of Pollen and Grace, the natural food company with a delicious range of home-cooked ready meals and snacks that are free from gluten, wheat and dairy. Everything the girls make is plant-based, fresh, ready to eat and all made from natural ingredients. The business has been going for a few years now and Pollen and Grace are already stocked in places like Whole Foods, The Co-op, Waitrose, Planet Organic, Selfridges and Harrods, as well as through Compass, the largest contract food services business in the world. Christina and Stephanie are working to become the most trusted healthy food brand in the UK and change the way the nation eats for the better. And in spring 2019, they raised just over 600,000 in equity finance to help them on the way to achieving that mission. So let's meet Chris and Stephanie and hear all about their fundraising story. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks for having us. Hi. Thank you for having us. And we're in, the, we're in the world of the coronavirus lockdown, so everybody's <laughs> in separate rooms, fully yeah. socially distancing, which is good to see. I hope you're both managing okay with, with everything. Uh, yes, it's um, it's the longest time we were actually just saying yesterday since um, that we've ever um, been part of the met. Chris and I have been working together since before um, Pollen and Grace days, so about eight years now. Um, so this is the longest we've um, we've been apart. <laughs> well, t- tell us more about the story of how you you two met. Then I'm intrigued. Um, gosh, gosh, yeah, yeah. I think we met back in was it twenty? Must have been must have been about twenty thirteen. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we were colleagues at a previous job. So we were both event managers um, in, a, in London, organizing kind of business to business conferences and consumer events in the coffee and food industry. Um, so still very much uh, to do with, with food, which we both love. Um, and we were just the dream team from, from day one. Um, we would always work on a project together um, and look after different parts of the, pro- of the same, same event, um, and essentially deliver the whole thing together. Um, without really even needing to properly communicate just kind of we have this weird way of um of communicating by us kind of, just... yeah <laughs> vibes <laughs> yeah. um so yeah we gosh we've known each other for many many years now wow okay so you work together yeah and, then, and so what tell us about what happened then in terms of coming up with the whole idea for pollen and grace so I guess kind of Pollen and Grace came from very humble beginnings. So um, back um, when, when we were colleagues working in events, um, I unfortunately discovered I had a whole host of food intolerances. And as a massive foodie, um, I actually back, um, I'm originally from Australia and back in Australia, I actually trained as a chef, um, kind of very much kind of fine dining, French cuisine, bread, butter, all those wonderful things. Um, so discovering that all of a sudden I couldn't eat um, most of those ingredients, um, I found very tough. Uh, so kind of 
eating out at restaurants was out um, for me, but kind of more importantly, kind of on a day-to-day basis, I realized that it was almost impossible for me to pick up anything to eat on the go. Um, It was full of kind of wheat and gluten and dairy, but also loads of stabilizers and preservatives um, and just stuff I didn't want to put in my body. Um, And um, most importantly to me, it all tasted terrible. Um, And all the lovely, wonderful things um, I would have liked to have eaten, I couldn't. So um, essentially I set about to um, retrain myself how to cook with all these kind of new and novel ingredients at the time. So gosh, rewinding, say, you know, six, six and a half years um, ago, quinoa and chia seeds were not something that um, you would have come across into your day-to-day life, albeit now you can pick them up in your, in any local supermarket. It just wasn't that way back then. Um, and I started bringing in um, all of my meals into, into the office. Um, they very much look like... Um, what you would find um, uh, in our pollen, uh, pollen kitchen these days. And it was literally from, um, from people in the office taking interest in what I was bringing in that the idea was born. I thought, well, gosh, if, 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 if people here want to, um, to, to pay me to, to make them um, a lunch, then maybe there's other people out there as well. And um, the idea was born from them. Oh, um, so did you, did you just decide there and then to set this up as a business and do that together? Um, yeah, so it was a very, um, I, I guess it was probably about six, nine months from kind of initial, oh, there could be a business idea here um, to first lunch delivered. Um, so all that planning was done whilst um, kind of for employment. So kind of built the website, um, kind of came up with the, the business concept and the model. Um, but we did start from very, very small beginnings. So we literally started with a website, um, a bike, and um, we were cooking in my kitchen at home. So, um, yeah. Okay. So was it, was, it, was, it the, was the start of the business about delivering those kind of meals to people in their offices is that kind of where it started exactly so to be honest it feels like with coronavirus we've gone um full circle now being the word delivering direct to uh to people's homes now um but yes um we we started as we could um we didn't have any funding behind us back then we were still funded actually for the first uh, year and a half of the business um so um, this was also before the boom of Deliveroo and Uber yeah. so um the Deliveroo wasn't as big as it is right now so this we felt like oh this is a great idea um delivering straight to where people are yeah. um yeah very quickly I was gonna say did you need, did you need much funding to get it off the ground I know you were self-funded at the beginning did you need to put much in no so that's essentially why we went for that um I think had we um had we had loads of cash um we would have probably started a a cafe or kind of a food Mm -hmm. to go store um kind of very glad that we didn't end up going down that route um definitely not the right route for us um but uh we essentially chose a model that was the lowest barrier to entry for us getting started with with no cash essentially what we needed was funds to build the website funds Mm -hmm. by the ingredients um and um packaging and and that was it um we did everything um on a shoestring kind of our first uh, logo was designed on 99 designs um our our branding was literally stickers from printed.com it was um yeah yeah but just shows you you know in your kind of industry you don't have to have huge amounts of capital to get started which is great no exactly um and then the the rest was to, to fund us until we could pay ourselves which um moral of the story is it always takes longer than <laughs> <laughs> so tell, tell us about that beginning that beginning part of the journey so you put some of your own funds in you've got your website you mm. produced a, a range of 
meals that you were delivering. Yeah, quit our jobs. So you quit your jobs. Wow. Yes. Okay. And so when did you get to the point where you thought, right, we're probably going to need some more funding here to take this to the next level? It was a year and a half in. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so at that point, we were already, um, we've transitioned from being just a boutique lunch delivery. Um, we started working with the likes of Planet Organic and Harrods and Selfridges, and, and we're basically um, slowly phasing out from the lunch delivery model. Um, and we realized that, okay, if we really want to take it to the next level and start supplying to some of the biggest supermarkets, we will need a proper kitchen um, and we'll need a proper setup. Um, so at that point, we were not working from a steps kitchen anymore. We were um, working from our first kind of official kitchen, <laughs> um, which was um, at the back of an, um, an army army barrack in Clubham Junction. Um, so we were basically just renting out a tiny little shoebox of a kitchen from, from the army guys. Um, and from there, we managed to scale up to quite considerable business, actually. Um, but we did realize that if we wanted to do anything bigger, um, we would need proper, proper cash behind us. Essentially, at that point, we were stocking our kind of retail range of, of food to go products mm-hmm. into... I'd say almost all of the speciality um, and boutique um, speciality supermarkets and boutique fitness studios in, in London. Um, so we kind of had hit the, hit the ceiling on, um, on where we could um, expand into mm-hmm. without then going after the bigger retailers like Ocado, um, you know, and, and the other bigger supermarkets. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, we did need some real infrastructure um, and that was, um, you know, far far beyond um kind of what we were able to um to achieve ourselves but you you actually got a really really long way on your own steam didn't you i mean that's it's actually amazing when when you look back i don't know how we did it um i think sheer determination and we had an amazing team behind us um you know none of us were getting paid a lot and we had a lot of people that were working with us just because they believed in in what we were doing and the nice thing is a lot of them are still with us now and have really grown with the brand and and grown their careers with us too um yeah that's fantastic and do do you think also there was an element of timing in that in that you would you just hit it at the right time with a with a product that people were starting to really want definitely we we started um as um i guess wellness was kind of um just kind of a little embryo and it was when we started it was a huge risk actually because what we were entering into was such a small niche that it wasn't even a niche now kind of uh, starting a healthy food business kind of makes sense whereas back then people kind of looked at us like we were crazy um risking our kind of careers and security to um to make some salads but just an interesting question did you always even back in those early days have this vision that you would build a business that you would scale or did that kind of realization that you could stay scale it happen as you went along um (laughs) no we actually always started with very big vision um although I, i think it's only something that we've kind of been able to come to terms with as we've taken kind of various steps along the road. So um, I guess that's why um, the company um, is called Pollen and Grace. Um, we wanted a name. It stands for our business values and we knew what we wanted the the big vision to, to represent. And we wanted um, a name and a brand that could come on a, a big journey with us. Um, however, you have to start somewhere. And I think, um, you know, we we really kind of I guess honored that um and kind of embraced starting small and taking it kind of step by step um and kind of working out um that path as we went along um kind of never originally thought that that would be having um a range of retail products that we stocked into supermarkets um that kind of found us um 
but also I think um, that kind of year and a half where we were self-funded was really that kind of development um, phase where we really got to to find our feet and, and work out what we wanted that big long-term vision to be. Um, but we always knew we wanted it to be big. Yeah, exciting. So <laughs> you got to the realisation that you, you needed to put some rocket fuel into this business to take it to the next level. Yes. Particularly focus on the bigger supermarkets and that kind of thing. So what, what, tell, tell us about that, the first funding round that you did. Okay. Um, how did it go? Who did you get it from? How much did you raise? So at this point, um, neither Chris or I had any experience in, in raising funds or the world of investment. Um, we lucky we had some great kind of friends um, that, you know, we could ask um, advice from and kind of get the, the lay of the land of how this whole investment thing worked. Um, and what we decided was that we needed to raise enough, uh, enough funds, which was uh, a couple of hundred thousand pounds um, so that we could build our own kitchen um, and get the right accreditation that we needed to be able to then start to supply to the bigger supermarkets. Um, and we went about that um, quite organically. We worked out that we needed um, an investment deck. Um, thankfully, we already had our financial model. Um, we started working with um, a finance director very early on when we were still cooking for my kitchen at home. So from day one, we've always had our finances in check. So that part of it, um, I think, helped a lot because um, I think kind of that can sometimes be the trickiest part is getting all your, your finances in check um, for an investment round because it is such an important part as um, I'm taking the word out of Chris's mouth here. That's what she'd normally say. <laughs> Um, it's the single most important part that you need as a business to actually be able to talk to investors and and attract investment. Mm. I think um, that's absolutely right. And and um, you know, I see most entrepreneurs shying away from that and leaving that to the last minute. Mm. That when you've got a really, I don't know whether you would agree on this, um, Chris, but when you've got a really robust and sophisticated financial model, it's not just about using it to raise investment. It's actually the bedrock of running your business. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, completely, 100%. That's basically, if you don't know the finances of your business, I don't think you actually know your business and you don't really know what you're doing and how you're going to progress it to the next level. But are um, you financial, are either of you sort of from a financial background? I know. <laughs> yes. Neither of us come from a finance background or food manufacturing background. So um, everything, we both come from an events background. Um, so what that taught us was to be really organized. Um, but otherwise, no, we've, we've learned it as we've gone. <laughs> the finance thing being so important which I totally agree with how, how did you go about solving that sort of early on thinking right we need some help with the finance um like Steph said we had um we had a virtual update from pretty much day one so he um set up everything for us in terms of our, our decks and our management accounts and, and how we report everything um and then we actually just learned from him along the way I remember the very first time when I would was talking to him they were showing me his spreadsheets on the screen and I was like oh my goodness I can't, I can't follow anything I don't know an excel wizard <laughs> now we are on a level where we can create our forecasts ourselves we can pretty much do anything and he just checks um, on us so it was very much um, a lot of education and a, a huge learning curve for both of us yeah um, but you, but have to make, you have to make excel your friend don't you and I think once you do once you become financially literate mm. it's so empowering yeah absolutely and you feel like you when you go into meetings and you know your numbers, um, you can't go wrong. Like that, you can't get caught out. I feel like um, every time we're pitching, every time we go to an investor meeting, um, those are the questions that you just have to nail. Otherwise, um, yeah. People well, this, this, this question about finance and when you're a startup, particularly the early stage, going out for mm -hmm. your first investment round, 
my, you know, some, a lot of entrepreneurs are like, well, how do I do this financing? How do I find the resource? My view is it's not about finding a big um, sort of financial agency. It's not no. about also having a full-time no. finance person. It's about having somebody who works, works for you part-time or virtually, mm. but, but, but somebody who doesn't make you feel like you don't, like they're pulling the wool over your eyes that can actually explain it to you in layman's terms. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our FD um, is still working with us to this day um, and he's still virtual and he's still part-time. Um, but like I said, he set up really elaborate and complex systems for us, but he explained everything to us and, and we learned so much from him. Um, and that's been absolutely incredible. So yeah, definitely would highly recommend working with someone that knows what they're doing, but also what is willing to teach you essentially rather than just be the, be the skilled one and, and try to kind of push you away from. Because right, at the end of the day, you're the one that's got to sit in front of investors and talk. And own it. Yeah. <laughs> own it. Can't outsource that bit, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay, so you've got your financial model, you've developed, yeah, you've developed exactly. a check. We okay. essentially went out to our, um, our network, so um, our LinkedIn contacts, everyone that we'd ever met, through um through our careers um kind of introduced the business told them what we were doing told them that we were raising um uh kind of first kind of c round of, of funds mm-hmm. um so we started to have kind of lots of different meetings um and to be honest it was a real learning curve for us um kind of getting used to kind of going in and, and pitching and kind of explaining um explain the business um in, in a way that we kind of ha- had never done before um but uh, and we were kind of halfway through that round, um, kind of progressing it. Um, and then um, we got an email from, um, uh, from, from our lead investor, exactly, who's also now our chairman, mm-hmm. um, saying that he'd come across us online and was looking to make um, an investment in the healthy food space and would we be interested in meeting. Um, and to be honest, we just thought it was spam at the time because it was just a really unusual email to get and um, formatting. The, he he had dictated the email, so it was you know some big text and small text. Um, so it did look like it maybe could have come from um, from somewhere in Africa. Um, <laughs> but here's um, my bank account details. Send me the money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think it'd been a particularly bad day and we, we responded and it turns out he was a real person um, and um, we met him and um, that was the round done. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so this, is, this is fascinating. Like, again, holy grail that somebody just finds you and contacts yeah. you. But do you know any more about the kind of process that he went through and, and you know, you know how, but was it your website that he saw? Was it the product that he saw? What was it that made him come to you? It was a combination of of everything. So yes, he would always say it's uh, the visuals of the brand. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was naturally, um, he was very interested in a healthy food space. So he comes from a food background. Uh, His whole career was um, around food. Um, So he was kind of, he knew that the healthy food space is the next big thing um, about to boom in the UK. Um, So he was looking particularly at at healthy food businesses in London. Mm -hmm. And I think we were shortlisted along three other. Yeah. but it was the, the visuals um, of the brand that he, he thought it was strong. Yeah. Um, and he, he did some press or he just discovered your website? Or? No, I think he'd just done some research. He'd, yeah. He, yeah. Um, so no, back then we, we definitely didn't have kind of really any press. We didn't have a PR agency. Um, we didn't have any of those things. I was still cooking in the kitchen and Chris was still organizing all of the deliveries ourselves. So 
we were not spending a huge amount of time on that business kind of social media was our, our only avenue to kind of speak to the world um but essentially i think the thing that sealed the deal for him was coming to see our very makeshift production facility um knowing we were supplying to the likes of harrods and selfridges um and um seeing kind of the level um kind of for example we basically 10x our growth from year one to year two um from an army barrack um kitchen which um had spilled out into the the mess hall the dining hall um and kind of mm. coming from kind of big factory world i think he was probably mildly horrified at our makeshift setup but also really impressed that we'd managed to pull that off and i think he thought well if we could pull that off then we can pull anything off um yeah so. i think it was, it was seeing the dedication to yeah. the class and uh, and us making things happen from literally nothing <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of interesting points there, I think. One is about how you present yourself to the world is so mm. important. And, you know, when you're doing a fundraising round, you've got to mm. look at everything from, is my is my website looking good enough? Mm. Is my LinkedIn profile looking good enough? Is my social media looking good, good enough? Because investors will look at all of those kind mm. of um, pieces of communication that you mm-hmm. put out to the world and make judgment calls on whether they want to call you or not. So. Mm. You have to look at the whole piece, don't you? Really interesting. Very, very much. And very LinkedIn important. is is a very important one within that mix as well. I think so. Very, very important tool. And then this piece about how you got him to come to see your production facility, and that that to me is all about kind of showing investors, not just mm. them, but showing them and inviting mm. them into your world. Yeah, it's a really important part of the process, isn't it? So not not necessarily going to meet them for a coffee somewhere else, but saying, hey, come and come and see what it's really oh, like. Really. Yes, um, to be honest, we've actually been very open every every single time during yeah. every every round. So even during a crowdfunding round, which came a little bit later on, um, very, yeah, quite a quite a large amount of people came actually down to see the production facility um, that we have now in Vauxhall. And yeah, uh, people kind of want to see the reality and and <laughs> whether it's actually all real. So when they see that, yep, this is how we operate. This is this is the size of the team now. Um, yeah, they want to see they want to know the people that are there you know what are they are they yeah. engaged are they committed to the brand are they as passionate as mm-hmm. you are all of that mm-hmm. stuff is part of the judgment call that people make okay. um, and quite hard to get that across sometimes in a two-dimensional pitch deck <laughs> yes the, yeah yeah um, pitch deck is just there to open the door exactly mm-hmm. so you've got this first chunk of money from your mm-hmm wonderful lead investor mm-hmm. so so what happened next then tell us about the next phase of your journey um, so he obviously is very well connected so um he um, introduced us to a group of other angels um that kind of came on board between 2016 and 2018 um so we had a smaller top of rounds um, basically just to get the, the production side um up to speed allow us to really scale up and, and invest a little bit into just a little bit into sales and marketing, but not a huge amount. Um, it was really for us those next few years was about professionalizing mm-hmm. um, the business. Um, kind of, yeah, but building our, our current factory was kind of a really big part of it, mm-hmm. um, but also um, moving into those bigger retailers. Um, so it took us about a year to set the production facility up. We were still running at the same time, um, but to go after the various bits of accreditation um, and then um, kind of a year later, we started working with Ocado and Compass Group um, and, 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 and Whole Foods. And um, then the year after that, it was, it was co-op. So, um, so it was a lot of money into infrastructure and, and growing the team, professionalizing mm-hmm. the team. 
that's where a food business costs a lot of money. So at the start, it was it was easy to start, but to scale it, um, it's expensive. <laughs> and your lead investor, I mean, you say he can't, he comes from the industry, so lots of experience, and he obviously helped you with securing other investors. Yes. And was he um, one of those angel investors that also kind of got a bit more involved in the business, or quite hands off? Like, oh, we still we still hear from him every week. Um, we would meet him um, every day. Up, so yeah, every day. <laughs> especially now yeah. <laughs> during these times we, we're pretty much catch up on daily basis and That's he's good. very much involved so um he um comes from the finance background of the food industry so he's very much um yeah involved in the financial part of financial modeling making sure that the margins are um where they need to be and he's been very very helpful so quite hands-on um, but also hands-off where um we've had enough freedom to um, take the brand where we wanted to take it and always the creative direction was always in our hands so that's um that's been brilliant sounds amazing could we could we yeah. clone him <laughs> <laughs> oh, you love to hear that <laughs> okay so 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 he brought other people in for you you're now moving the business forward quite significantly you're professionalizing it mm-hmm. and then so the next funding round you did, was that then your, your crowdfund that you did? Yes, exactly. So that was, uh, everything else was kind of smaller dribs and drabs, kind of top up rounds just to launch a new client, um, to launch a new product range, etc. cetera. Um, uh, and then it was, I guess, kind of over Christmas of, um, what's it, 20, it must have been 2018. Yeah, Christmas of 2018, where um, kind of realized that um, we'd spent a couple of years kind of building a really strong, robust business. But what we hadn't done was really kind of gone out to, um, to market and kind of let the world know we were, were here. So um, that was why we decided to go down the crowdfunding route as the next step, because um, we... So, mark some effort, so marketing more than anything. Exactly. We knew that we had co-op that we were launching, which was a huge scale up for us um, and that we'd need to make um, some infrastructural investments. But we also knew that we needed to start investing into sales and marketing um, as a brand. Um, and we thought kind of what better way to, to do it um, than kind of use the crowdfunding platform um, to kind of spread the message. Um, and also over the years, we'd built up a really, really strong, loyal brand following. Um, and it was kind of the perfect opportunity for us to kind of harness um, that kind of collective and, and get everyone um, kind of on board. Reconnect yeah. with your customers um, all around the country, basically. So that that's, that was really, really the best part of, uh, of crowdfunding. I think we will both say the same thing. And also quite, I imagine quite a reasonably affluent customer database working with. Uh, yes, especially from the earlier days of our, of our delivery. Um, we were definitely seen as a more kind of premium brand. So we definitely had more affluent following. Um, now it's becoming um, much more mainstream also with the growth of, um, of veganism and, and kind of flexitarian diet. It's, a, yeah. it's just so accessible and so um, to, to many more people. Um, but yeah, I would say yeah. I would say for you. I think it was testament to our campaign. Um, we ended mm-hmm. up with, um, a, for the amount we raised, we ended up with a lot of investors. So we raised about, yeah, we ended up with 615 individual investors, mm-hmm. um, which was huge. Um, and um, a lot of that came from, from our customer base as well, um, some of which had been ordering our lunches when we were still cycling them around on a mm-hmm. bike. <laughs> and also, I mean, you, you said that at the beginning when you were thinking about raising investment the first time, you'd already gone out to your whole network. So mm. they must have been quite primed as well. People, all those people that were in your black book that you knew. For yes. 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 We, 
I would love to say we do it better than um, than we had. I think there's definitely kind of improvements we could have made in terms of being um, more strategic and planned um, in kind of dropping regular communications. But I'd say we kind of did just naturally maintain quite a a, a good um, good network and base. But I mm-hmm. think that's probably a really important thing to consider and something that I know that we can always improve on is um, keeping regular communication and just keeping it in touch with people um, in between those rounds. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say that it was actually during the crowdfunding campaign when we realized how important LinkedIn is. Um, that really became our kind of platform, um, connecting with our, with our personal audiences and really um, harnessing those contacts um, and, and sharing the news. Yeah. So now LinkedIn is really, it, it's a number, number one tool really when we're kind of personally wanting to, um, to say anything. We, we both don't really use any other social media like Instagram or Facebook. Um, but yeah, we're quite well on, on LinkedIn when talk about, talking about Pond and Grace and, and our personal journeys. That's really interesting. Has, have you connected with all of your investors on LinkedIn so that you've, you've built that database out? A large amount of them, yes. Yeah. <laughs> do you, out of interest, do you, um, I mean, obviously you'll be posting on LinkedIn, but do you also use direct messaging en masse to, to communicate with your network? No, we haven't used that yet. It's more kind of just posting updates about what Pollen and Grace is doing, what we're doing personally um, within Pollen. Uh, but no, we're not doing really any, any direct messaging. Yeah. In, in, for, for our first round, what we did was we had everyone's email addresses that were on all of our LinkedIn contacts because this was, um, I guess, before the, the, the days where you could just download mm-hmm. a contact list from LinkedIn. Um, and we did send out um, individual communication to hundreds and hundreds of people on our LinkedIn. Um, and it did, it was a, it was a great place to start with, with leads. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I know it's not quite the same um, way that you can do it now, but, uh, yeah, direct messaging and reaching out, um, there's a lot that can come from it. That's really good to know. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your crowdfunding campaign in detail <laughs> then. So, so talk, how long did it take you to get ready to go live? Really? <laughs> so this is where we um, tell you what not to do. Um, <laughs> so um, it was a complete whirlwind for us and probably one of the most stressful parts of the last five and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, we planned it very quickly. Thankfully, we already um, kind of, we always have our financial mod- model ready and we have, that, that's a really big chunk of it is getting finances ready and building a business plan for investment. Um, so thankfully we already had that. Um, essentially we got ready in, gosh, it was five weeks. Uh, five weeks yeah. From deciding to, to launch. Um, and that was, um, including kind of pitch deck, um, video mm-hmm. building out the whole campaign, the whole marketing strategy. Um, so finding your contacts are basically yeah. to build your kind of list of contacts that you will go out to for the pre-registration. So, um, I don't know if um, you and your listeners are aware how uh, crowdfunding actually works. Let's talk um, about the pre-registration phase. I think mm-hmm. it's important that people understand how that bit works. Mm-hmm. So, so before the campaign actually goes live um, to the public, um, there is a short amount of time um, where people can pre-register their interest and then the campaign opens only to those pre-registered individuals. Um, so basically our our job was to create a list of contacts um, and basically funnel them through to the pre-registration page make sure that they put their contact details in there and officially register their interest to to invest in the business um, and then um, when we felt comfortable enough that we have enough kind of pledged funds in there um, we opened in 
the private mode, um, where basically people are completing their the pledges and so actually really um, completing and confirming their the investment. Um, that's um i think the public mode the private mode um we had it over running for seven days didn't we yes i think um it's normally about a week that you can kind of have it open for and that is um i guess such an important time because the um percentage of funding that you launch with is so important um and i think it it changes as the years go on so um kind of we launched with 50 percent funded yeah um however these days that's even a, a little bit light most people will launch with 70 or 80 percent funded um but we organized it in just such a short period of time that um we had only 50 percent of the funds confirmed um so um we yeah when you look at definitely the felt the pressure yeah it's tough isn't it i mean i remember the yeah. funding round i ever did you know we i think we must have launched with maybe 30 percent, which was mm-hmm. the rule of thumb then my yeah. God. I mean, it was like, hold on but yeah. she, with terror, you know, to get through this roller coaster ride. Oh, the, uh, oh, really? the amount of times you can refresh a page. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you, I don't know if you'd remember because you're probably too young, but it's like the old days when Blue Peter used to do charity appeals and the thermometer of how much they'd raised would go ah. up every week. <laughs> excited to reveal. Yeah. But yeah, it's like every second you're looking kind of, has anyone else invested? Anyone yeah. Else? The oh, first thing you do in the morning when you wake up. <laughs> But that, that, that bit, the pre-registration phase, I, I want to talk mm. about the metrics on this, which I think are quite interesting. Um, so do you remember what amount you had pre-pledged and then thinking, what's the reality of what we think will actually come in? Do you remember that, that piece? I don't know, if, Steph, if you remember exactly the figures, but I think we were both very optimistic because we, optimistic yeah. because we had a lot of pledges and we mm-hmm. thought, oh, wow, great, the campaign is done. Um, and then, um, so we crowdfunded it with Cedars and, and we were just chatting with them and they told us that I think the conversion rate on pre-registration is actually really low. Like maybe 10%. Um, yeah. I think we ended up with about 30%. 20%. I think it was somewhere about 20%, yeah. yeah but, I, but I agree with you. I think we're well, most entrepreneurs. We're all super optimistic people. <laughs> okay. No, we've got this amount yeah. of pre-pressure. Of course they're all going to come in and invest. And actually yeah. it is shocking how... It's such a low conversion rate from people who say oh, absolutely. that to actually do it. We we were we felt like oh, we've got this. We can we can launch now and see it as well. Like oh no, like you know the conversion like this rate is really low. We need more in the pre-registration, and we were yeah we didn't believe them at the time. And then when we actually opened in the private right. market, ah. like, oh, okay, what's happening? Where's all the money? So that's when you need to start you know pick up the phone and call people and say what's up. Um, yeah, and that's a good point you make there about picking up the phone. Um, if you can collect people's phone numbers when you're doing the pre-registration phase, that's really powerful because not many people do pick up the phone these mm. days. If you do it, you can have a lot of success yeah. and have a great conversation with someone. Yeah. Too. So most of the contacts we had in our pre-registration, um, we actually knew them personally. So it, was, um, it wasn't too difficult to actually follow up. But uh, I think we quickly realized that, that people sometimes just pledge because they're interested in campaign, want to see how it's going. Um, and they go at a higher range, but then they will actually um, um, invest much less. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a learning curve. I, I think looking back at it, we would definitely extend the pre-registration um, further and make sure that we launch higher than 50% because it was it was quite stressful, but also just looking at like the most successful and striking campaigns that always launch with pretty much like fully funded. Mm. Um, um, yeah, and 
yeah that's when you really gain the momentum and then it really becomes exciting a really short snappy campaign that um achieves the target very quickly and then go and goes into funding within a week mm. and i think it took us what three three or me i think it was about three weeks um to reach 100% um, after we kind of went into to public mode. So it was still qu- quite quick and we did overfund um, uh, as well. So um, by what about kind of 30 or 40%, I think. Um, but I think we were both imagining that we will, we will go into overfunding within a week and <laughs> <laughs> two weeks of opening yeah. Yeah. that wasn't happening we were like oh dear what are we doing yeah we still closed <laughs> the campaign early but i think that's also a um, great uh, example of um our, our optimism like oh yeah we can do it in a quarter of the time that it actually <laughs> takes to do and you know we might have done it in half but <laughs> how did you manage your stress through all of that Oh my goodness. Um, I, look, as best as best as you can, it completely took over our lives for three months, completely Absolutely. took over our lives. Um, kind of something, just a little thing that you don't think about is um, obviously um, once um, once the campaign is, is live, people are contacting you um, to request uh, to look at your financials, to look at the investment deck. So you're getting hundreds of people contacting you every day. And most of the time that's out of work hours. So um, evenings were spent just um, kind of on the computer, on the phone, responding to every single um, in- inquiry to make sure that you kind of got back to people as quickly as possible because obviously you want them to look at it as right then and there um, and invest as, as soon as they can. So, um, yeah, it was all-consuming. Evenings, weekends um, were just glued to that screen, refreshing um, and responding to people. And also lots of um, potential investors will be obviously asking questions about the business and the plans. So... Mm. Um, and some of those questions are quite tricky to answer, mm. so not not always super comfortable. So yeah, it was definitely um, yeah. oh, it took, just completely took over our lives, basically. Yeah. Can I ask you when you finally closed the round, or, or, or whether it was when you hit your target or when you closed the round? Did you stop and celebrate? Um. <laughs> I so don't we, think we did. We didn't. <laughs> when we closed the campaign, I think yeah. we were, gosh, we were a couple of months away from actually launching into co-op. I think it was about so six weeks away from uh, one. Was, so we were really tight on time. It was a very fast gear shift um, where we literally call money done, co-op next, and let's go. <laughs> Classic entrepreneurial behavior. Uh, yeah. We never stopped yeah. to celebrate us. No. I think yeah, we, high five, well, we definitely high-fived and we definitely had a little celebration. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're both like, okay, that's ticked. We're going to have to move on to the next big one. And Cobb was obviously, it was a huge scale up. So um, doubling production from one day to the next, it was definitely something that we were like, okay, we need to get this right. We can't fail. <laughs> so let's, let's, I wanted to also um, ask you about um, another bit of investment that you got mm-hmm. post your crowdfunding campaign yes. from a family office. Yes. <laughs> which is another completely different type of investor. Yes. And um, I think it would be great if you can just talk a little bit about the fa- you know, what a family office is and how you found mm-hmm. them and what it's like working with them, which is very different from working with an angel investor, yeah. very mm-hmm. different from working with crowdfunding investors. Yes. So family office funds is probably the most professional um, money that we've, we've had into the business. Otherwise, it has just been angels and, and crowdfunding. Um, I guess family offices are probably a little bit more approachable than I guess the, the next um, I guess step up um, in, in terms of uh, level of investment, which would be a venture capitalist for VC. And then after that, you've got your big PE funds. Um, so family office 
to be honest, um, has been very similar for us to, to working with our angel investors because our angel investors are quite professional um, mm-hmm. in, in investment. Um, the due diligence that we've um, done with them and the board structures we have in place are the same as if we probably had a VC. So yeah. um, we haven't noticed a huge difference. So the due diligence we had to do for our very first investor was actually very thorough and very, it was conducted in a very professional way. Um, so we used a lot of that information and that structure for the due diligence for Cedars for the crowdfund. And then that was also used for the family office. Um, the only difference was that for the family office, we, um, so they have like an investment committee that obviously need to, so all the members are voting on, on each investment. Um, so we were part of um, a kind of um, virtual meeting and we essentially pitched to the full committee and asked all the questions, answered all the questions. Um, but it was a very, it was a really lovely and straightforward process. So um, mm. you know. there were a lot of additional questions. There were pages and pages of questions and mm-hmm. additional due diligence. So I think that's the main difference is um, the level of due diligence and um, the, the need to be able to answer all the questions, a lot of which are financial about your business. Yeah. Um, but that is thankfully something that we're quite comfortable with. And did you find, did you go out to find them or did they find you this time? Um, they actually found us as well through the crowdfunding campaign. So to be honest, we probably would have had them involved in the crowdfunding campaign, but we had such a tight deadline um, with um, with launching into co-op. Um, and uh, we we had some kind of very large pieces of equipment that we needed to to buy and have in the kitchen um, for the scale up. So we we kind of just had to, um, close a crowdfunding campaign and move ahead so that we'd be ready in time for co-op. Um, and then it was about six weeks later that um, Amakase, our uh, family office, came on board. Mm-hmm. There's another interesting benefit of crowdfunding and that mm-hmm. it raises your profile in the whole investment community, doesn't it? So Hugely. Kind of so valuable. People start to come out of the woodwork without you actually actively having to go out. Mm-hmm. And the assets stay there. So um, I think one of the first things that you find on Google when you Google Pollen and Grace will still be a our campaign, our, our, our video, so it's still very, very much there and, and really introduces the brand in a nice way. So. Amazing job. So let's talk about what's next and, 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 and I'm also intrigued to know kind of what does the current, um, you know, situation we're in with lockdown and who knows what's going to happen with food and service industry and the economy, how is that all affecting you and what does that, does that make you think differently about your strategy and your, and particularly your fundraising strategy. Mm. Oh gosh, where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> is that really so, hard? Wh- right now, um, right now there is not a huge amount of um, market. Well, yeah, there isn't a market for, for investments, especially kind of within our space. So mm-hmm. um, I think for, for investment during kind of this period, it's definitely just about kind of holding tight and waiting for the market to recover. Um, mm-hmm. So um, Yeah. In terms of how we've been affected, um, so obviously the food industry, um, certain parts of it are booming um, and then there are certain parts that are not. We are unfortunately of that uh, latter part. Um, So the buying buying behaviour has changed dramatically. People don't really pop into their local supermarket to buy ready meals or food to go effectively where we we normally go. So we've definitely seen quite a big decline um, in, in our revenue. Um, Especially due to store closures. Um, um, There's lots of football, but also yeah. we do a big big chunk of our work is with um, Compass and Elio, so Compa- um, contract catering. So that, that part at the moment is completely on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously for for us, it was super important to to act quickly and, and just 
realizing that our customers are still there. They still want to buy us, but they can't really find us anywhere or access us easily. Um, so basically go back to our roots and, and offer next day delivery um, to, to London homes uh, was what we decided to do. And yeah, we launched our platform, gosh, six weeks ago, five weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, it literally, months, it, was basically, <laughs> it, it was a few days after lockdown. So um, we acted very quickly. Yeah, mm. I like to see that. That's good. And are your existing investors being fully supportive? Are you, you know, I mean, obviously this will impact your, your runway. Mm-hmm. Um, are they, do you feel that they, they've got your back through this? Yes, absolutely. So um, on, on both fronts, so obviously we're exploring all the, all the options in terms of what support we can get from the government, what um, initiatives are out there that we can, we can make use of. Um, but also we will be leaning on heavily on our, on our current shareholders to, to support us through, through this time. Yeah. yeah. Difficult times, isn't it? But I mean, with your business, it's mm. a trend that I, I imagine will only pick up and get even bigger once this is all over. Definitely. This, uh, yeah. Um, and yeah. We, we have a, a big launch into Tesco as soon as um, the world goes back to, um, to normal and people are able to leave their houses again. So uh, mm-hmm. fingers crossed for, for July, you'll also be able to find us in Tesco, which is, um, is a great thing to, to have um, to look forward to um, as a business post, post-COVID. Massive. And do you see international expansion on the horizon? Um, Definitely. Yes, yes. It's part <laughs> of our, our, our big dream. Not this year, maybe next year. Super <laughs> this year it's all about the UK. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your journey. It's been very, very interesting. And um, I wish you all the best for, for the rest of 2020. I hope that um, things look up for you. But what a great pivot you're doing. Um, and I'm glad you're still taking all your healthy food to London. It's great. <laughs> thank you so much. And thanks so much for having us. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free, so if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.